welcome to the Christian Education Podcast. My name is Paul Matthews, and I'm a third-generation Christian educator. And today, I've got with me the head of the Humanities Department at Calvin Christian School, Kyle Fifield. As educators, the way we use time is incredibly important. Dr. David Smith said that really all we have is space and time. Once you peel back all the layers of textbooks and resources and pedagogical techniques and classroom management strategies, the two tools of the teacher are space and time. Today, Kyle Fifield joins me to discuss how we can shape the time we have with our students. We know that after Jesus died, he was resurrected, he ascended into heaven and was seated at the right hand of God, where he still reigns as king over everyone and everything. The question before us then is, how do we shape our time in such a way as to honour the king? Are there rhythms or habits or patterns that we can work into our practice that will intentionally form students to be followers of Jesus? Of course, we all have habits or patterns that we fall into, don't we? Humans are notorious for being creatures of habit. The real question is then, what is the message contained within our repeated actions? Do these practices intentionally lead our school community to love God and love others and care for his world? Or are our actions carrying a different message within them? As always, before we flick the mics on, Kyle and I prayed for you. If you're a teacher or a parent, we pray that you might be able to audit your use of time and deliberately shape it in a way that aligns with the truth of the scriptures. And if you're a student, we have prayed that you, as you travel through time, through the days and weeks and terms and years of your education, that you would be formed into a young person who loves God, loves others, and loves his world. Well, Kyle Fifield, welcome to the Christian Education Podcast. What a delight. Great to be here. You're a first-time guest. You're a long-time friend. And... Uh, you're a seasoned campaigner in the education space as well. So could you tell us, as is the custom for new guests to the show, tell us a little bit about why you got into education and what your journey so far has looked like? I got into education, firstly, I think because I loved the, I loved the content. I was into the material through university um, and then became a Christian whilst at university. And so I think the potential to take the great staff of history and literature uh, and shape people's heads and then through that get to the heart and then see that work out in the hand. The opportunities in teaching just seem to me so much greater than um, following sort of the academic path. And so, yeah, went from went from sort of that path and crossed over into education sort of midway through my university degree. And what did your first job then in the education sector look like? So I ended up straight into a, a big boys boarding school, an Anglican boarding school, which was a fantastic place to land. It's a little bit like starting with dessert, however, it was so rich that it's been difficult to see, um, yeah, I guess the way, the way back out of that experience, but it was, um, it was a great place to start. And I started both teaching in history and Christian studies, but also in the boarding house itself. And so I was a boarding house parent, me and, and my wife, so we had both that sort of deep relational richness of that time as well as um, learning my chops in the, in the classroom. And for those playing along at home, 
Tell us a bit about what you've specialised in through your university and how that corresponds to what you're teaching in the classroom these days. So my focus was history primarily, but following on from history into the Masters of Teaching, then ended up doing another postgrad in history and theology, and particularly the history of theology. And so that has led to my um, my teaching in studies of religion in particular, but also modern and ancient history. And I have certainly benefited from your study. I feel like I'm getting the leftovers in some senses because we teach the same subjects at Calvin. We do, we do Year 9 and 10 has together. That's geography and history. And I have had many uh, a, a fantastic little nugget of wisdom from you. So that's, that's been great. Also, also picked up a couple of very adventurous pedagogical moves uh, from you. So it's been, it's been good working alongside you thus far. Likewise, likewise. We're here to talk about liturgies. Now that might be a foreign concept to some people out there. It's going to seem like I'm changing the topic, but I'm not. Um, it's a, we need to lay down an idea, first of all, before we get to the liturgies, we need to lay down an idea as a base coat. Um, really, as teachers, we only have two things we can use. We've got our pedagogy, which is how we teach, and we've got the curriculum, which is what we teach. Now, every pedagogy, uh, every sort of philosophy of how we teach, every pedagogy rests on a corresponding understanding of uh, what humans are. To put that more succinctly, you might say every pedagogy has an underlying anthropology. So all, all our ideas about how to teach are resting on ideas about what humans are. Now, you and I, we're educators, professional educators. So it can be very easy for us to think about human beings primarily as cognitive beings, cerebral beings, as thinkers of things. Now, how would you say that interacts with the truth we see coming out of God's word? Yeah, well, I think it's not less than that, right? It's God cares about our minds and the way that we use our minds. But I think it's also much more than that. It is easy to get sucked in into that Cartesian mode of thinking about what humans are, these kind of bobbleheads on sticks, brains that are just waiting to be filled. But I don't think that is the biblical picture, or sort of certainly the entirety of it. Um, in that, you see both in the Proverbs, we talk about, you know, above all, guard your heart, but then also in the greatest commandment that we get to, to love God with all your, um, with all your heart, with your soul, your mind, your strength. Um, we are creatures that, that love things as much as we sort of think about them. Um, and I think that bears itself out in, in the broader Christian tradition as well. They're, you look at the way that we have worshipped over time, uh, it is not just ideas there are elements in the way we have worshipped that grab our hearts in, in song, in stature, in posture, um, in movement. Um, the shape of things is targeted to grab our hearts as much as it is to grab our heads. And that's very evident in our theological tradition as well. So we're both Presbyterians um, and perhaps one of our greatest exports theologically is the first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And the question is, well, what's the chief end of man, the chief purpose? And our chief purpose, we say, is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So to, to glorify God is primarily an act of the heart. Sure, the, the hand and the head are involved also. And we also then look at enjoyment, um, taking a rich, deep pleasure in God and his creation. 
Um, God's after our hearts. You may have mentioned earlier as well the greatest commandment. Uh, it's actually to love things. Human beings have designated ourselves uh, homo sapiens, which means a, a wise man or a thinking man. Uh, it would seem that perhaps the better way to phrase that biblically would be we are homo adorans, meaning we are actually worshipping people. We're not necessarily driven by what we know. We're actually driven by what we love. Absolutely. And I think to lose that, um, our culture, I don't think, has lost that. Our culture realises that there's a whole bunch of stuff that goes on for us pre-cognitively um, that shapes the way we behave. And I think the culture has devised a number of very intelligent ways of getting after um, our hearts in, in, the, in the sorts of things it ritually introduces us to. Um, so to not be aware of that, I think, would be a mistake. So now we're going to circle back around to liturgies. We needed to lay that idea, the idea that we're lovers of things primarily, down as a base coat. And credit where credit's due, that's not our idea. Um, James K.A. Smith, very popular in this field, has got a great book out called You Are What You Love, and I can link that down in the show notes. Um, Firefield and I are also standing on the shoulders of a different giant as well, David Smith, Dr. David Smith, um, who... Uh, we were lucky enough to actually uh, study with um, through Regent College uh, for one of his units there. So that, much of the ideas that we are talking about today will have been sort of digested through those um, two Smiths, who I'm assured are, are not related. Um, but once we've established that we are primarily lovers of things, created to be lovers of things, um, we then need to... That's where the idea of a liturgy comes in. So a liturgy is something you do, isn't it? it well, you would know better than I with your history degree. Uh, wasn't it originally defined as sort of the work of the people? Yeah, that, that's right. In, in ancient Athens, um, these rich blokes in ancient Athens would be com commissioned to do these big public works. Uh, and over time, that has taken on a sort of ecclesiastical meaning that's the works of the people. Um, but I guess in, in layman's terms, it's come to mean something like an order of service, a, a repertoire, um, a series of repeated actions, phrases, uh, the shape of the gathering, the shape of the work of the people. And while it started, or at least it was developing into something that was ecclesiastical, we actually can look around and everything we do is in some way liturgical. And this is where James K.A. Smith's definition is really helpful, where he talks about liturgy as uh, a practice, something you do, that contains within it a deeper story about who we are and what we're for. Now, we're creatures of habit. Um, largely, we structure our lives by sort of osmosis. We do what those people around us do, or we, we do what you know, we did a couple of times, and then we just get entrenched in that particular pattern. And then we kept doing that. We keep doing that ad nauseum not sometimes realising that those practices that we're repeating are all the while shaping what we love and discipling ourselves with a story about who we are and what we're for. Yeah, it's been one of the really good insights of a guy like um, James K. Smith to say, just because you haven't thought about what the liturgies of your, of your life or your classroom or your church service are, um, does not mean that a liturgy does not exist. There will be a liturgy there, a shape to things, a series of repeated 
um, forms that you engage in, whether you know it or not. So I recently wrote an article for the Christian Teachers Journal uh, on this exact topic, and one of the phrases I used was that of liturgical inevitability. You will be doing liturgy. It's not a matter of whether you will, but which liturgies are you doing? And that's exactly what you were just saying. David Smith uses a fantastic phrase. He talks about the architecture of time. We're all inhabiting time somehow. Some of, some of our time might represent more of a, a ghetto or a mud hut or, or something that's perhaps not had um, the most thoughtful design. Others will be inhabiting this cathedral that's been really beautiful and deliberately designed. So we actually owe it as stewards of everything God has given us to steward our time well, to use our time in such a way that reflects, as James K.A. Smith would say, the kingdom that we are a part of. Yeah, the way that you use time is packed with meaning. The things that you give time to, the first thing you do, the things that you, that you pause for, that you repeat, the way that you close out your time particularly, that's all packed with meaning. Is it packed with the sort of meaning that you, you want it to have, I guess is the question. All right, well, let's try and get this in a pretty practical place then, Kyle. We've done a good job, I think, so far of talking about the concept of a liturgy, and certainly we can be somewhat of a John the Baptist figure and point people in the direction of James K.A. Smith or David Smith. So let's land this now. Let's, let's get uh, down to brass tacks, as it were. We, we're teachers in a school. Many of the people listening to this are teachers in schools. What are some of the things that we can actually do to implement these ideas? How can, what liturgies can we be forming in our educational practice to shape ourselves and shape the students in our charge? It might be useful to break it down into sort of the parcels of time that we have. So should we discuss potentially a lesson, uh, a day, a week, a year, how you might put that together, liturgies for those sort of spans of time? That sounds like a good scale. Let's start then with examining our lesson. Okay. Well, again, if you think about a lesson as something that has a beginning, potentially a couple of middle parts and then an ending, then you can build a liturgy for a lesson that then can be plugged into your lessons ongoing. So, so it shouldn't be, once you've done the first lift, there shouldn't be too much onerous work to do from that point, which is one of the beautiful things about liturgy. So let's think about the start. Um, I guess one of the privileges of teaching in a Christian school is that you get to start in prayer. Now, I know not all people listening to this will have that, um, but it is, if you're teaching in a Christian school, often we, we do start with prayer. So it's worth thinking about what's in that prayer. I think if you, particularly if you're going to repeat the sort of ideas that might go deep and start shaping affections, shaping the way that they see the world. Um, so opening with a prayer that potentially talks about, uh, and this is something I've tried after talking to another colleague here, talking about what we're about to do in the lesson as vocation. Um, so not just praying you know, that we have a good time together, but praying, help me to teach well, help the students to learn well as part of the vocations to which you have called us at this point in our, uh, in our journeys. And I think that, over time, starts to shape the classroom, not just as something we get to and, and sort of last the distance, but something we do as part of our calling, uh, something we do as a meaningful bit of work that God's called us to. So I think if you're in a classroom, particularly in a Christian school, you're probably praying, have a think about 
what are the repeated sort of phrases, ideas, postures you might work into that prayer so that it's packed with the kind of meaning you want? That vocational idea has been something I've used in my practice quite a lot. Teachers will have heard many, many times, when am I ever going to use this? What bearing does this have on real life? Am I ever going to use this in a job? And that's where the language of vocation is so helpful because you say uh, a vocation is a calling, it's what you're called to. And yes, I, as a teacher in the Christian classroom, I'm doing my job, I'm doing my calling. Actually, you can say to the student, you're doing your calling right now too. I'm not the only one participating in my vocation. Your vocation right now is of a, is, is a student. So that's, that's your job, that's your duty. And so the idea that we're going into the classroom and it's not us performing for the students hoping to put on a good, good show, we're actually seeking to uh, all live out our calling at this particular time before the throne of God and to, to do that really well. That's right. Um, another, another way I've tried starting a lesson, and this was something I've tried fairly recently, um, is to begin a lesson... If you know John Hattie, they start with kind of learning intentions and success criteria, which is its own kind of liturgy, really, um, trying to infuse a particular sort of metacognition in the students. Um, I've started with a little routine called the Learn For, um, where after surveying the students and I, I realised the sorts of things that they've imbibed over time about what they think their learning is for, what this lesson is going to do for them, often about careers, um, them being able to sort of go and be a citizen, this sort of thing. Um, we start with a routine saying, in this lesson, um, who are you learning for? And they'll specify a person or a community. And then, so we spend some time doing that. And so we orient the lesson about, this is not just about me. This lesson is about um, loving the other as well. And then we come back at the end of the lesson and say, so look at the person you said you were learning for today. How might you go and use this for their benefit? Either asking them a question or putting what you learn into practice uh, or telling them about it. Um, so another way you might start a lesson to shift the posture of the whole thing right from the start. That's incredibly powerful given that the great commandment to love God with our heart, soul, mind and strength is very closely followed by the second greatest command, which is to love your neighbour as yourself. And your neighbour could be anyone else God has put on this earth. So you're automatically at the very start of your lesson saying I am willing for the benefit of this learning to accrue to someone else's account. I love starting my class. I picked this habit up in a primary school actually but I think it works fairly well in a high school. I get everyone to come in and we all stand. No one sits before we've officially started the lesson. Everyone comes in and files in. They'll stand behind a desk. I'll say good morning students. They'll say good morning Mr Matthews in unison. I'll say God bless you students. And they'll say, God bless you, Mr. Matthews. And I say, let's bow our heads and pray. Um, of course, there's nothing in the Bible that says you have to bow your head when you pray. But it's, again, a physical action that I think is imparting a sense of um, sobriety. It's a, it's a somber, weighty thing that we're about to do here. I've started every lesson I've ever taught like that. And it bears some, uh, hopefully, it will bear some good longitudinal fruit in terms of the students are just regularly talking about God, regularly going through the physical action of praying. Also, it bears some funny fruit when you're just walking around the schoolyard on duty and kids are coming up and screaming, God bless you, Mr Matthews. These sorts of things. It just becomes, the liturgy takes a life of its own uh, there. What have you done in, have you done anything in ending a class? Have you looked at any liturgies for the way you would bring a, a period or a class time to a close? 
Yeah, I think two things that I've tried. Um, one is I've built a PowerPoint um, where students select a number at random from the PowerPoint that goes to a particular slide. Um, and just being really intentional in those slides about asking the sorts of questions that I care about as a teacher. So things like, um, who have you learnt from this lesson? Or who could you turn to and show some gratitude towards in this lesson for something they did for you or for the class? As well as questions around what was one way that your assumptions or thinking was challenged during the lesson. So using that final sort of plenary moment um, to ask the sorts of questions that I think matter educationally and doing that through some sort of random selection, you can do that. Um, and the other thing, which is a really simple thing, is just standing by the door. And so any student that leaves the room has to leave past you so you can say to them, thank you for the lesson or you did this well. Um, I guess really yeah, personalising that, that end point of the lesson so that you leave with a connection rather than kind of heads down, see everyone, um, that sort of more impersonal finish. And it's worth pointing out here too that students will need to be trained up into these liturgies. Their habits and practices that they'll need to get better at over time. I remember the first time I tried to get a group of year 10 students to stand up and say, God bless you, Mr Matthews. It didn't work so well, but by the end of the year, it was really humming along. And there are same things with filing out of the classroom. When I, I, I don't do that anymore, I used to, and I remember being really discouraged because I thought it would automatically entitle me to this really powerful send-off. But it's very easy for students to just still shuffle out as they're looking at their shoes. And so you're going, oh, by the way, guys, when we're leaving, let's make some eye contact. If you're happy about life, throw me a fist bump. These, these sorts of things. So that's, that's a lesson. A lesson is a very small unit of time in a school. Let's go bigger than that. Let's look at a day. Have you used any day-long liturgies or anything like that as you've thought to shape uh, time in your educational practice? So in, in a day, I think there is also a chance for the, the day to finish with chairs up, rubbish off the floor, and that being the final capstone of the entire day, the entire learning day for a student. And that is fine. That is a good, partly stewardship of a classroom. But is that the most powerful formative way to end a lesson? Again, something I've picked up, I think potentially from yourself and others certainly from um, some of the literature, is let's think about not just the way our minds have changed, so the head, um, but let's think about what we learned that potentially got beneath the skin, that got to the heart, that got to the affections? Has your heart been impacted some way? And then finally, if that's the case, your mind has changed or your heart's been hit in some way, could you then go and do something? So the hand. So that head, heart, hand, final reflection. And that could be about the whole day's work. It doesn't just need to be about your class. It could be about you've just spent this day learning. Um, how's your head, your heart and your hand before you go home? In some ways, it's also a very helpful self-assessment tool as a teacher because if you're sending people out from school every day and for 10 days in a row they've said, oh, actually, Mr Matthews, there has been nothing that's impacted my heart or I actually don't think I could implement any of this knowledge in the world, you are forced to look back at yourself. It's all very good to say, yep, we're all about full, whole-bodied, holistic student formation. We want to grab the head. We want to enliven the heart. We want to equip the hand. But then if you realise after two school weeks, you, you haven't even touched the heart, you, you haven't even approached the hand, then that all of a sudden re makes us realise that there is a disconnect between our theory and our practice. 
and it will hopefully draw us back in line. So the, the head, heart, hand reflection is something I use regularly and it's a great little safety net for me. It catches me before I go, hang on, it's been a whole term and I haven't called the students to find anything beautiful or um, to deeply desire a certain state. And that's exactly what liturgy in the church service is designed to do as well, that you don't go off the deep end talking about one particular thing for an entire year without coming back to this gospel or this psalm or this, this aspect of who God is. And so just like good liturgy in the, in the church, I think good liturgy in the classroom does that for us. So let's continue zooming out here. We've looked at the lesson. We've looked at the day. Let's have a bit of a think about the week. Now, one of the liturgies that I've used in my homeroom in the past Everyone in the homeroom prays. That's a standard. If people aren't praying in their homeroom, they really should be. That's an easy way to shape time, to honour your king and to form the students around you. But one of the things I've said in my homeroom is that I want to deliberately use the architecture of a week to represent the whole span of a school's existence. So on Monday, it's the beginning of the week, we're looking back to the beginning of the school and I, in my prayer, it's only 30 to 60 seconds, it's not long, I'm thanking God for the founders of the school, for the people who contributed time, effort and money um, to get this place up and running. We hit Wednesday. Wednesday is the middle of the week, so we look to the present. We say, thank you, God, for all the teachers and all the students at the school. Thank you, God, for the parents who have um, made the sacrifice to send their child to this school and give them a Christian education. And finally, Friday, where we're sort of looking forward to the weekend, and then we, we lift up our gaze further than just the next couple of days and we look to the future of the school and we pray for future teachers. We pray for future students. We pray that students will go on to become parents and send their children to school here and so on. So every, every week we're actually dragging the gaze of the student over the whole timeline of the school. We're making them appreciate what God has done and what he's doing right now and what he's going to do. And we're also hopefully cultivating a real sense of gratitude a thankfulness in the heart of the student for what God has done. I, I love that. And I, when we talk about how do you build a culture in a school and we think about disciplinary policies, we think about tight academic rigour. But yeah, what about, what about what we do every week in terms of how we think about what we're a part of, uh, where we think about where we come from um, and what this might mean for people who aren't us and I guess inspire you potentially to invest in something that you won't necessarily see the benefits of um, but for the good of future generations and the, the good of the school you're nonetheless willing to to pray for that I think yeah if, if you're trying to infuse particular f formations and, and, and affections for a school and being a part of something that sort of weekly structure is a great way to go that would be aside from having all of the students in my classes know and love Jesus and love one another and know one another well, that would be right up there in my list of aspirations for them, that they actually develop a great gratitude, in this case, for Calvin Christian School, that, that they, know, they know where the school came from. They know who, uh, you know who wore out their shoes building this place and who spent all the Saturdays and recycled all the Coke bottles and so on and so forth and, and are actually proud carriers of that legacy on into this day. Uh, even casting your eye further afield than just a school, any organisation that doesn't have a healthy respect for its own culture, it's just a sad sight to behold. So, so cultivating that in students, cultivating it through liturgy, is a beautiful thing. 
Let's now zoom out to perhaps the biggest unit um, that we'll deal with as we examine liturgies, the year. So have you done much thinking about how we can shape our year as a school to reflect the lordship of Christ and our citizenship in his kingdom? Yeah, I think one of the things that immediately happened as, as Christians realised what the Christ event was, um, one of the things that immediately happened was they tried to reclaim time and situate that moment as the thing to which all of history had been working towards and which we'll all work from. Um, and so grabbing a hold of a calendar was one of the ways in which that happened. And so the, the leadership here at this school, I think very wisely, decided um, we, want, we want the marks of the Christian year to be high points, things that we celebrate in, in this school. We talk about liturgies, I think one of the things that creates culture and um, feature of liturgies, yeah, what are you celebrating as you go? Um, if you think about it, what in your school year... What are the events where the whole school sort of pulls together in a particular direction? What's the thing that the whole school takes seriously, that we give up time to, um, that everyone's really focused for? Often, that thing in a school is the exam period. Um, That's when everyone gets really serious about what we're doing here. And there's timetables produced and there's silences maintained and, and all these things. And so I think it would be possible to leave... A school year thinking the most important thing, the thing that this school is really on about, um, was the exam period. And so what we've tried to do is pick um, a few of the key kind of evangelical feasts. Um, particularly we've been targeting Easter, um, but also I think we've got um, the Ascension, uh, we're looking at Pentecost uh, and then Christmas as well and trying to make those big moments in the year around which the whole school kind of coalesces and, and does some, um, some serious work. So we've done things like um, holding sort of art competitions, musical um, days through the, through the week that every, every different day is a different musical festival or, or an art display. Um, we have done a bit more of a sort of interactive Stations of the Cross using some the readings from Scripture, filming some teachers reading those things out, um, and using some QR codes around the school to have the students sort of travel through the stations with some props, um, reliving and walking in Jesus' footsteps. Uh, we've got some ideas to potentially hold a bit of a sort of Passover feast, um, you know, sort of set up an audience around um, some people going through that feast and talking about what did it mean and, and how does it point forward to Jesus. Um, so things that just bring the community together and indicate we're all serious about this um, and everyone from the various departments and, and from the top down, we're pulling together to go, this is a big moment, um, just gives, gives the year a, a topography that's a Christian one. It would be very easy, wouldn't it, for students to leave their school life with a time having been structured in such a way that tells them that Christianity is really important except for when the rubber needs to hit the road, mm-hmm. except for when the heat's on. Uh, we, have, we have our weekly assembly where we have worship and a devotion and we celebrate things as a school. Of course, the seniors don't rock up to that when it's exam time. They've got other things to do. Right. It would be a real shame if that's the way we structured time. So actually, you're right, uh, celebrating, and Simon Matthews in his episode on uh, leading students to love education said a really big part of culture formation is what you celebrate. Um, not necessarily... Uh, 
behavior you're trying to extinguish, not necessarily cracking down on certain things, but when are you, li- when are you coming together as a school um, to, to recognize the weight and the value? Sp- speaking of weight, one of my favorite moments from the Stations of the Cross is when um, I think we were racking our brains, we figured out the cross would weigh about 40 kilos. Right. So you bought in two 20-kilo plates from your home gym. Rod Thompson also often talks about immersion needing to be whole-bodied, immersion in the scriptures. Right. And there was nothing more whole-bodied than watching these year seven students trying to carry 40 kilos up a hill to represent Jesus carrying the cross. That, that was vivid. And uh, like I said, probably the most, there was some whole-bodied pain the next day, I'm sure. So as we wrap up then, Kyle, is there anything you'd like to leave educators with, whether, whether they be parents or teachers, or is there anything, any encouragement, exhortation you want to give students as we try and tie a bit of a bow on our discussion around liturgies today? I think the crux of it is, as we said at the start, there, there is a liturgy to your year, to your week, to your lesson, whether you are thinking about it and have done it in a thoughtful way or not. Um, and in some ways that is imposing. Certainly I think about you know, how do I take care of every little movement that I make, every, every word that I say and repeat. Um, and that's potentially true, but I don't think that stops you taking little steps and going, no, I'm going to make that little bit intentional. And then once I've built that, that's there. Um, and I'm going to make the way I finish intentional because I want to send that particular message at the end. Um, so I think the key thing to, to consider is, is what is happening in that sort of pre-thought, um, almost subliminal way um, that you could potentially bring to the forefront and tweak, twist, um, and pack it with the sort of the meaning that you're, that you're keen for students to be, to be taking home. That's a fantastic point. I remember when I first observed the primary school teacher getting all the students to stand and say, good morning and God bless you, Another teacher, as I was talking in the staff room about how fantastic I thought this was, was giving me a bit of a sidelong look and said, yeah, it's all a bit formal for me. I'm not one for that myself. I actually ended up being a teacher's aide in their classroom a little later on. And how did they start the lesson? By screaming at the kids to pipe down and, and then telling them not to play with the projector and then slowly, gradually getting into the task. And... I was with that teacher um, long enough. Now, that's an uncharitable representation of them. It was, it was just they started the lesson in exactly the same way every time too. Um, perhaps there had been less thought about it, but it was as liturgical as the alternative. And all they were doing, uh, I, I would like to take a moment sometime and press in, what is that start? You know, the slow, staggered people dripping in, someone's eating food, one guy's, you know, standing on your on the teacher's chair, um, trying to boss the class around, and and you're just slowly trying to bring order out of the chaos. What message is that instilling in that moment? That's right. And if you if you're thinking about this and going, it's too much. I can't be I can't be across all this all the time. My students are going to like it. I think the old adage, which has been true. We see in the biblical text, we see it in the ancient Greeks, Aristotle and whatnot. Um, We don't always think ourselves into new ways of acting. Often, it is that we act ourselves into new ways of thinking. You want to be generous? Well, it doesn't do to just think, one day I'm going to be generous. When When it counts, I'm going to be generous. No, you need to habitually work that generosity muscle so that when the time comes, it's a reflex rather than sort of cranking your head into gear. 
um, for the big moment. And so I think that's what we're, we're chasing after. That is a fantastic concluding message for us, Kyle Firefield. Thank you so much for your time today. And I look forward to uh, many more discussions with you in the future. Thanks for having me on. Absolute pleasure.